during our midday prayers that we have on Tuesday through Friday, I often will begin our prayer practice by taking a moment and having everyone take slow, deep breaths and pay attention to their breathing. And so I wanted to start our sermon off with that right now, in part because, frankly, I need it. Uh, being candid, it is upsetting when things don't go the way we expect them. And I find that uh, today I was having a difficult time returning to a frame of worship. And so this recentering, and I spent a little bit of time uh, before we started worship and then a second time when we uh, prayed with our worship team, but uh, I thought doing it again would be a good thing before we proceed. And so let's take a moment and wherever you're sitting, take notice of how you're feeling, how your body feels, how your posture is, and just take a few slow, deep breaths. And as you breathe in, invite God to be with us during this time, during our time of hearing the word proclaimed, and during our time of worship. And as you breathe out, breathe out the things that might be giving you uh, apprehension or frustration or challenge or the things that would keep you from being centered and focused on God. And so I invite you to take that moment, take a few deep breaths in and then out. Gracious and loving God, we do invite your presence and acknowledge that you are with us wherever we might be. We ask your blessing on this time, on the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. One of my greatest joys over the past several weeks has been story time with the kids of our church on Monday nights and Thursday nights. We're gathering on Zoom. Hold on one second. Technology, I've said, has been a challenge. And it seems that at every corner right now, I'm having technological challenges. So you're not gonna have as much eye contact from me today because my little teleprompter isn't working. I'm giving away all the secrets today and who knows why, but it's not working. So I'll tell you, one of my favorite parts about this time of the coronavirus has been the, uh, the chance to have story time with the kids on Monday nights and Thursday nights. It gives the kids and their parents a little break from the pattern of their week, and it lets them see their friends. Um, and I've got this small collection of children's book. I've collected them over the years, and it's, it's kind of something I laugh about a little bit because I, I wondered why I collected them over the years. And it made sense to have them with uh, friends who would visit, but also when I would lead campfire at our camp that I worked at for many years. And so I probably had a dozen or so books. And I quickly ran out of books, though. I was reading two books a, uh, two books a week, and so I, I quickly ran out of them. And, um, and then I discovered the library at the, at the church and started gathering books from, uh, from the church library. And then I started to go online. And I started looking at what are current, uh, what are current books that are uh, popular for children in the church setting, uh, but also just generally in the world. And so um, I, uh, I discovered that there was a common theme in a lot of these books a common theme uh, in a lot of the books. 
And what is this theme? This theme is a question, like a search. It's a search for God, but also like a search for love and how to, uh, how to bring that love into the world. But especially this question about God. And it makes sense to me, though. Um, it makes sense because... Hold on. One, I'm going to... This is... It's a little adventure in life. I will acknowledge, as I've said to you all before, that I'm a bit frustrated. And I'm going to just pause for a second and take another deep breath. And I'm going to start over. So there's something interesting that I've discovered about a lot of these books. And a lot of these books are religious, but many of these books are what I would call vaguely spiritual. Vaguely spiritual. Sort of like many people today, right? And this theme, like I've said, is a general quest. It's like a search for God. And, and it makes sense, like I say, because last year when I asked the kids of the church to bring me questions, and I got really good questions, questions that were very detailed questions about biblical stories. And, and some of them were impossible to answer, questions about life and death and questions that we'll all be asking for our whole lives, questions that fuel our journey, our quest. And I hope that no matter your age, no matter how old you are, you'll keep asking the questions, even the hard ones. And that when you are asked the hard questions, whether it's from your kids or from others, I hope you'll have the confidence to answer the ones you can and the bravery to acknowledge when you don't have the answers. One of my favorite questions, though, that I received was the very question that I've seen as the theme in so many of the books. Where's God? From a young age, children want something more concrete when it comes to understanding God and seeing God. So much of the developmental years are about growing in knowledge and understanding. We explain science and math. We, we talk about the weather and maps. We learn about flowers and animals. These are all concrete things. And then we're asked this question, where's God? takes other forms, right? What does God look like? Why can't I see God? How do I know God is there? And the inclination often is to answer very differently than we'd answer a question about a math problem or a scientific formula. And in many respects, again, this makes sense. For many people, though, belief in God is as much about tradition as it is about reasoned, thoughtful belief. Belief in God, for many, has been accepted, but not necessarily examined. And once examination comes, once we start putting it under the microscope, we begin to latch instead on the things we can imagine. We turn to the places where there are answers. We're thirsty for knowledge, but we're also thirsty, in a sense, for cheap knowledge, for easy knowledge, for defined answers. So when a child asks us how we know God is there, some of us pivot. Back in the day, and, and perhaps some of you have experienced this, you, you might have even gotten punished for asking a question like that. Children were meant to be seen and not heard, especially when it comes to churches. 
but especially questioning God. It was, or even it might still be, as though it was heretical to even ask. Or maybe there's a fear of shame in answering the question, a fear that a child or grandchild will not have the faith of the family. Or maybe the real fear, maybe the real fear is the inability to answer the question. I remember upsetting a senior law partner with a question one time, and I was baffled as to why it angered him so much when I came and asked him the question. And I realized later, when he answered the question very calmly in an email to me, that he was upset because he didn't know the answer. And so many young people asking questions about God, they get shut down. Instead of exploring the question and acknowledging the complexities of faith, they're sent away. But this quest, this search, it doesn't go away. It just leaves the church. They go somewhere else to find the answers. The search, the search is part of our humanness. A few weeks ago, I shared about the cave drawings from the earliest documented history of humans and the drawings that appear to seek a connection with the unseen. Our imaginative quest for the unseen is as much of our humanity as our flesh and our blood and our life. So we all ask the questions. When Paul enters Athens, he enters a place that is steeped in the pursuit of answers, the pursuit of not just knowledge, but of other people's knowledge. The thirst, not just for learning, but for understanding. And I love the way that Luke, the writer of Acts, says a little earlier, a little earlier than what Lottie read for us, he writes that the people in Athens, these men that Paul is speaking to, would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. It's pretty cool, right? They're intellectually curious. And this curiosity has led to, well, it, it led to a curiosity. In trying to learn about everything and everyone, there became this excessive volume of information, of knowledge, but also of conflicting objects of devotion or following. This was especially true when it came to religion. These philosophical experts wanted to learn everything they could about every religion, and they also wanted to cover their bases. And so when Paul arrives, this is why he looks around and he sees these shrines and altars and buildings and statues devoted to God after God after God. Some of them were ancient. And many of these, God, these altars were to gods who were unknown. In researching these unknown gods, I read something interesting. About 600 years before Paul's visit to Athens, the city of Athens was, subject, was the subject of a terrible plague. And the city leaders were struggling and confused about how to contain this plague. People were getting sick and dying. They tried everything they knew to do. They made sacrifices and burnt offerings. They looked for whatever gods they could find to honor. And they were puzzled when nothing was helping. They were told to go to an island and find this man called Epimenides. Go ahead and say that name. It's a funny name, right? Epimenides. And Epimenides, like Paul will do 600, later, 
600 years later, comes to Athens and he sees the devotion of these people to all these different gods. And he's actually kind of confused as to why they're cursed with this plague when they seem to be doing things right. They've got all these bases covered. He decides, though, that there must still be another god who has the power to save them. He comes up with this idea. And he lets loose a flock of black and white sheep. And the sheep go running throughout the city. And they run until they're exhausted and they lay down. And in that spot where the sheep lay down, if it wasn't near another shrine to a god already, Epimenides would have the workers build new shrines to an unknown god. The legend has it that within weeks, the plague goes away. Now, I'm not ready to go out and get a flock of black and white sheep, although I must admit that I'm surprised that I haven't read about anyone trying it now. But I have to wonder. I have to wonder whether these curious, intellectually thirsty Athenians, 600 years later, wondered about these altars to the unknown gods. And I wonder if they wondered, I wonder if they wondered about the unknown god. Of course they did. Of course they did. So much so that they told that story of Epimenides, right? So much so that it perhaps even fueled their unquenchable desire for knowledge, almost serving as a reminder that they hadn't found all the answers yet. Keep searching. Keep going. Almost as though the altar to the unknown God represented all the unanswerable questions. Like the cave drawings scratching out a plea to the unseen, like the spiritual but not religious quest of so many people today who are releasing themselves from the baggage of religion or, or releasing themselves of the people they see practicing religion that they just don't want to be like. The altar to the unknown God becomes that place where our questions that seem unaskable, the questions that we confront when we read the news or we feel the anguish of loss or, the, or we struggle with despair, and even the questions we dance with when we feel the overwhelming sense of love and the warmth of a friend, these things that, that can't be explained easily in a children's book or even a grown-up book, these things of being a human aren't explained in a formula or a calculation. These, these questions and thirsts and curiosities, these things that make us human, these are the things that we lay at this altar to the unknown God. Paul says simply to these people who are gathered, this unknown God is the God of creation, the God who made you, the God who made me. God who made the stars and the sea and the God who is all around you and in all of those things, those questions, those fears, those mysterious joys and all of those things, this is the God who is so close that you can reach out and touch God. The God who is in your stories and in your pains and in your struggles and in your loves and your happiness and your playfulness and in your arguments and in your disease and your loss, the unknown God is the God who you know more intimately than you could ever imagine because the unknown God is speaking to you, right to you. 
through the rhythms of your life. Your, your life is where God is revealed to you. Frederick Beekner writes, listen to your life. Listen to what happens to you because it is through what happens to you that God speaks. It's in language that's not always easy to understand or decipher, but it's there powerfully, memorably, unforgettably. Paul says that that God intended that people would search for God, reach for God. But even more important than our act of reaching, more important than our grasping for the answers, he writes that indeed God is not far from each one of us. God is not far from each one of us, no matter where we are, no matter who we are, no matter how how far we think we've run. God's closeness to us, like God's wonders in creating the world and like God's conquering death in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, like God's transformation of the lost and the lonely and the wounded, God's closeness to us is not dependent on you or on me, and it's not dependent on even our own determination of whether we deserve it. God's closeness is simply a reality, a promise a constant. So reach out. Reach out for this God who is not far away. But even if you're not there yet, even if you're not ready yet, may you find peace in knowing that God is not far. May you find peace in knowing that the unknown God, the one to whom You have confusedly scratched the cave drawings of your heart. The one to whom you've cried out when you weren't sure if anyone was there. The one who you were sure was there dancing with you at your most joyful times. May you take comfort in knowing that God has always been there. That that God will always be there. And that you are never, ever alone that you are never, ever separated from God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.